Guys, I'm having a little trouble trying to explain to people on the phone <laughs> what I have seen. This is not a movie I that you can it. summarize in a sentence, is it? Isn't that a good thing? It think? is a good thing. I mean, yeah. I mean, I think there's, there's, you know, we all, as an audience and the critical community, kind of clamors for, you know, films that aren't so formulaic, that aren't so predictable, and, and I feel this like, is, yeah. you know, that, well, that was one of the really exciting things about this to me, is even when we were trying to make it, people say, what it's about, what's it about, and you can't, you can't... Is, you really need to take it in and maybe see it again. It's, but it's, it's a problem it's for the thick. marketing people. When you see the commercials, <laughs> yes, it, is. it just looks like you know you guys are fighting and I'm going to see Rocky again. And that's really but not what this no, is. No, no, not at all. This yeah. much uh, of the movie. Uh, uh, I'm glad you said that. We hit on so many issues. Yeah, it's it's tough to 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 put a label on it because I have never seen anything quite like it. To everyone's credit, but especially Fincher's and. And Chuck's voice. It's, yeah, it's just, it is. It's an unusual, it's very, very thick with ideas. Almost. It's a philosophy class or something. I, I it's think movie so, you yeah. go watch, philosophy, and then you theology. find yourself talking, you know? Yeah. It is, it is as a, we were, in the beginning when we all sat down, I said, Fincher and Brad, I said, you know, Endless discussion. This, is, this, is a, this is a zeitgeist film. It's a, it's a film that if we get it, if we catch the spirit of this book in this film, we'll, we'll have really kind of held a mirror up to the culture at a certain time, I think. you to hug me as hard as you can like now well yeah it's it's bromance month so yeah what what if i punched you in the ear no that would hurt let's mm. not do that well how what do you <laughs> like what do you know about yourself if you haven't been in a fight troy uh i don't know man but uh i've been in lots of fights and they hurt so i'd rather take the hug over a punch to the face and again it's bromance month you can't just go around hitting people in bromance month that, you got to save that to like March or April. Start fights with strangers. No, you shouldn't. You shouldn't. No Project Mayhem homework nope. for tonight. No. It sounds like you're alluding to the third film in our bromance lineup. Uh, what, what are we talking about today? Well, Troy, the first rule of this film is you're not supposed to talk about this film. <laughs> so, oh, damn. You're right. <laughs> uh, first rule of Fight Club is not to talk about Fight Club. So therefore, we can't talk about Fight Club, can we? Yeah, so easy, short week. All right. Well, I don't know if you're listening in the morning, the afternoon, or evening. Thanks for joining this week. What's next week, Brad? I totally forgot about it. Uh, it is Showdown in Little Tokyo. Showdown in Little Tokyo. So come back here. We're going to close out Bromance Month with Showdown in Little Tokyo starring Dolph Lundgren and uh, the late and great Brandon Lee. I I'm looking forward to that one. It should be fun. Yeah, I can't wait. Okay, well, we'll see you then. Don't lose your head. Just kidding. I'm sure that joke has never been done before <laughs> never, in podcast history. Never done. We are so original and funny. Isn't like that the film version of a dad joke? 
Oh, it is. Okay. Two dads joking about Fight Club that you're not allowed to talk about Fight Club. So then we joke that we can't do this podcast. So yeah. Yeah. That would have I been. I hope no one turned it off. <laughs> I hope you see the runtime that it's much longer than three minutes. Yeah. Uh, so, Brad, we're talking about 1999's Fight Club in honor of Bromance Month. I, I am surprised. We'll we'll get into this when we get to your section. But I'm I had always thought this was just a huge hit, and I think because of the DVD sales, like everybody I I knew owned this thing. Yeah. I, I just assumed it was a huge box office hit. Uh, but yeah, this is, this is our second David Fincher film too. We, we, we dived into the world of Zodiac, which, um, I think he did in what, 2007. Yeah, that was, yeah, that was 2007. That was eight years after this. God, that that was one of our really early episodes. Yeah. So we were, we were super excited to talk about that, but I got, I gotta be honest with you. I'm super excited, uh, about getting into this film because I'm sure we're going to go places uh, when when we talk about the themes and what this film kind of tries to tackle. So let's skip the dad humor and even, uh, I don't know, anything that we would do from an intro. And let's just get right to your stuff because I'm, I'm really excited to talk about this film. So let's get back in the time machine, go back in 1999 when this thing was released. How did it do when it came out into the wild? Yeah, everyone was fearing Y2K at this point in time. It was two months away, Troy. It was October 15th, 1999. Oh, man. Um, with a reported budget of $65 million. Troy Fight Club only makes $37 million domestically and another $64 million internationally for a grand total of $101 million. I was completely shocked by that. Cause like you, I thought, Oh, fight club was one of the biggest movies of all time. No, it wasn't. Well, definitely back in the late nineties. I mean, again, we'll, we'll talk about the production and development. Everyone was talking about this film. Yeah. That's crazy. To add another layer of this though, uh, the DVD sales of fight club generated $55 million uh, (laughs) in uh, revenue. So uh, theatrical bomb, let's just say that theatrical bomb, Uh, not a critical bomb, right? But I mean that, (laughs) Sadly, we're missing that market now, and that's why we don't get a lot of films like Fight Club anymore, because the studio, yes, lost money theatrically, but then this movie became quite the cult hit with DVD sales, Blu-ray, and all that other stuff, and it really kind of gave it a second wave of you know, that revenue train, and that train is gone now. I don't know how streaming does and VOD does for studios, but it can't be anywhere close to what it was DVD wise. Well, I was thinking about this too. So, uh, you, you know, you're talking about the really the heyday. So when fight club came out, you know, DVD was still early. Mm-hmm. Um, this was released, I think on Laserdisc in Japan and there was VHS copies out there as well. So we're making the transition over to the smaller disc. And I, I, I always wondered these films like fight club, which I think is considered an independent film released by a major Hollywood mm-hmm. studio, right? So it's part of that Fox label. But I mean, where, where do these exist anymore? I, 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 even when you look at the streaming services, I don't think movies like Fight Club exist. Now your rom-coms, your action films, the traditional films um, that are out there, they're all over the place in all the streaming platforms, but you don't see movies like this anymore, right? No, not at all. Like this is a... Going back and watching, that was the thing that kind of stood out. It's just how unique it is. Um, yeah, and with, without a DVD market to to really, I don't know, uh, 
just get in everybody's hands and in their living rooms. I mean, even even if something like this came out on a streaming streaming service, there not everybody has all the streaming services, so you're going to be missing a large population who will never see your film, right? Yeah, and you're you're trending for a few days and then you're gone. Yeah, and the you're not in the conversation anymore. Fight Club was in the conversation for it felt like for years and years and even to this day. So anyway, well. We'll get to that later. Okay. Um, opening weekend, it makes $11, uh, $11 million. That's good enough for first place. It beats out films like Double Jeopardy, The Story of Us, Three Kings, American Beauty, and Random Hearts. Okay. So, you know, some decent films. Yeah. Actually, Judd in there for you for uh, Double Jeopardy. Here is where I, I was shocked first that it didn't make a ton of money. Then I was shocked critically... Um, it only was at a 79% critically. Really? Uh, yeah. I thought. I thought it'd be in the nineties. I thought like nineties easily. Yeah. Uh, Ebert hated this film. Well, he didn't hate it. He gave it a two star review. Um, he kind of missed the point of the film, which is weird for uh, Ebert. Um, and then the audience score though, audience score at a 96%. That sounds right. That's with over two, like, 250,000 reviews. And so I, quite a bit of reviews. I would still say the audience missed the point on it too, um, but we'll get into that. <laughs> we'll get to that. Yes, to, to that. Um, one of my favorite things in the world, Troy, is when Movie Guide gives us the content of films. And boy, do they have some things going on with this one. I was wondering if they would even tackle this one. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> do you even want to guess of what they would rate this? Again, for people who don't know, Movie Guide is a website that reviews films, not for their quality, but for their content. And they use a plus four to minus four scale. If you're on the plus four side, you're uh, very holy. And if you're minus four, you're blowing up buildings as a part of Project Mayhem. Yeah. I'm going to say, I'm just going to put a number out there and I'm going to say negative three. It is a negative four, Troy. Four. Wow. Yes. Okay. Language heavy, violence heavy, sex moderate, nudity moderate, intentional blasphemy, evil, gross immorality, and or world view problems to be avoided. Here we go. Uh, anaristic, anaristic, nihilist, anarchist, web. Anarchist. Uh, yeah. Uh, nihilistic worldview that distorts truth resulting in complete mayhem with jabs at Christian bait support groups. Man picks fight with priest and sprays Bible with mace. Oh, yeah, he, that's true. He doesn't spray it with mace. No, he's he's hitting him with a water hose. But yeah, I, I mean, that scene does. alone probably just forget anything else. The fact you're picking on a priest and getting the priest yep. to fight. That's negative four. Yep. OK. Um, and man tells man that God doesn't like you. 55 obscenities, nine profanities, plus your uh use your words. Uh plus <laughs> god urination scene. Sorry, urination is a hard word to say for that just years. threw you for a loop, man. Yeah. Uh massive amounts of violence, including many bloody, brutal fistfights, car accident, shooting, explosion, man burns man's hand with chemicals, and dreams of a scary plane crash. Depicted fornication or pornography use of full male nudity, full female nudity, and brief but graphic image of male genitalia. 
alcohol use, smoking, and addiction to support groups, man urinates into food, stealing, disturbing images of advanced stages of dementia. Hmm. Yeah. And finally, films you could have seen in October of 1999. You got Drive Me Crazy. Okay. Three Kings. Yeah. Boys Don't Cry. Uh, Random Hearts. Superstar. Oh. Remember Superstar? I, I do. <laughs> I try to forget that movie every day. Uh, the Omega Code. The Story of Us. Bats. The Best Man. Bats. Bringing that, out that Lou Diamond Phillips film? Yes. That's actually a lot of fun. Yeah. Bringing Out the Dead. Oh, Scorsese. Uh, okay. Being John Malkovich. And uh, the music of music of the heart. Oh, well, just being John Malkovich, bringing out the dead and even fight club. Where are those movies anymore? <laughs> I know. I was thinking when I saw being John Malkovich, I'm like, they would never make being John Malkovich today. That movie is too weird and too. I, I like I, I yearn for the day where they made films like this, Troy. Yeah, I, I, I think streaming services push them out every once in a while and they fly under the radar. But like you said, they're just forgotten, right? Mm-hmm. They just don't have any staying power. Uh, and especially with Netflix not putting anything out on physical media unless, you know, Criterion or something picks it up. I think they picked yeah. up Marriage Story. You're, you're I, I don't know, it's just, it's going to sit with one particular audience. And if your audience is binge watching old television shows or looking for the latest rom-com um, I don't know, uh, Bollywood, Tollywood film. Netflix does have a pretty good selection there. It's just getting lost and it's really yep. sad here. We're, we sound like a couple old guys yelling at the sky. <laughs> well, I mean, one of our favorite forms of media seems to be dwindling, dwindling away. Uh, and when you're reminded of films back in the early two thousands, that really kind of pushed the envelope. It really brings that up to the forefront of just how like the lack of good, original ideas are or diverse ideas i mean diversity yeah yeah yeah, there's sure there's just not much to go unless you like marvel films or big spectacle there's really not a lot to go to the movie theaters about anymore and and i think those films are great to go to the movie theater for but i also want to see the smaller stuff too i want to see everything i want to see from you know the triple a all the way down to the most independent thing you can see that someone may, well, Skinnamarink would be the kind of that. Oh, I don't no, know if I'm see that. So. <laughs> We're not allowed to say that title. Yeah. Uh, uh, Skidmark, I, I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I do have a little. So at our local theaters here, we did get Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania. But it also opened against Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey, which you hear is absolutely mm-hmm. terrible. Uh, but I, I there is a glimpse of hope that you're getting some of these small films out there. It seems like horror is is where it lives, yeah. right? Against the major blockbusters, but it's still missing for every one of those Ant Man films. You're still missing about three or four that weekend, which would have come out like in in late '90s or you know even the '80s. Because I, I I think about everything that we've talked about this month so far, and even when we talk about um, Tango and Cash, Miami Vice, what they were going up against when they came out, man, it was a great time to go to the to mm-hmm. the theaters. Mm-hmm. Now you just you don't have the optionality that you used to, which yeah, you have one or two options a month yeah. if you're lucky. Always reminded of that when you go back and kind of read what was released. Uh, what else? Anything else on? Nope. nope. Did I mentioned yeah, fifty five million dollars in DVD sales. Yeah, that's crazy. Unheard of now. We'll we'll talk about that here in a minute when we talk about production development and even post release. But 
let's start uh, with the folks that made the movie. Well, we won't spend a lot of time on director David uh, Fincher because we spent a lot of time when we talked about Zodiac. But to give some context, um, Zodiac was 2007. So that's one of the newer films. Fight Club comes out in the middle of The Game, which was 1997. Then you had Fight Club in 99 and then Panic Room in 2002. Yep. And I, I think we said this. I mean, David Fincher is one of our favorite directors simply because I think his output is pretty unmatched at a certain level. I mean, would you agree with that statement? Stylistically, yeah, he's got a he's got a he's one of the best visionary directors I think we have. Um well I and I would I would say visionary directors with substance. Yes, yes. Uh say what you will about Benjamin Button is a film I I don't like. I would give all the money in the world to see the, the curious case of Benjamin Button in the theater released this month. You know, like that's how we've kind of gone. Well, I'll get off that course, but um <laughs> but no, I think Fincher is is easily one of my favorite directors. I think the social network is a classic. Uh even, you know, like Going with seven, the game, Fight Club, Panic Room, Zodiac, that's a five-picture run that's pretty it's impressive, hard to man. beat. Yeah. yeah. The screenplay is done by Jim Oles. Uh <laughs> I was looking. He's, he's done some shorts, some other stuff. Probably the only other major film he worked on was Jumper from 2008. Not not a great film. I think that's the Doug Lyman-directed film. but It's I, Doug Lyman, yeah. Hayden I, Christensen. I didn't hate it. It, it had its moments. It may be something we talked about because I think it bombed as well. Yeah, I think it actually, I think it made a lot of money. Oh, it did? Okay, never mind. Yeah, we don't have to talk about it. Yeah, it made $225 million on an $80 million budget. Okay, good for Doug Lyman. There you go. The the movie is based on the book Fight Club by Chuck Palahniuk. Now, the book was published in 1996. And um, when we get to production development, we'll talk about it a little bit. But I'll just go ahead and stop right here. The DVD, the Blu-ray, everything around Fight Club as sort of home media material, it's fantastic. And anything that you want to know about the film and anything they put out from a marketing, advertising, I mean, the thing has like four commentaries on it, Mm -hmm. both the DVD and Blu-ray. So you can sit there and get some very insightful uh, commentary on this and, and really spend hours upon hours dissecting the thing. Um, but we'll we'll talk a little bit about the book when it's released. Cinematography by um, Jeff Cronenweth. Oscar nominee for Best Cinematography for two films, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo in 2011 and The Social Network in 2010, both Fincher works. Mm-hmm. Edited by James Hay- Haygood. So again, he's worked with Fincher on The Game in 97, Fight Club in 99, Panic Group in 2002, and a little other sample of movies that he's worked on he did Tron Legacy in 2010 and uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, which I think was 2004. Ooh. Okay. Yeah. Music. Tron Legacy will pro- – I don't think it did as well as Disney wanted. I, I would like to revisit that. I, would I listen too. to the soundtrack all the time. Yeah. But I need to look – I think it did fine, but it didn't hit the expectations that Disney was expecting. But, you know, truth be told, Tron Legacy compared to the original Tron, how many people – were they really expecting to come off of Tron? And Tron was a cult classic. Yeah. I, I don't know if it was necessarily a mainstream classic, but that, that's for another discussion, right? Music by the Dust Brothers. 
Now, this is the only film they have on IMDb as a composer credit, but they've done a lot of work and, and they will pop up in, in movies in terms of some of their work. Uh, two other names I want to talk about because I think it'll come up in the conversation, but visual effects supervisor, Kevin Todd Hogg, and uh, we've got Meatloaf starring in this film, and I thought it was kind of interesting. Kevin had actually worked on Meatloaf, Bad Out Hell 2, Picture Show, that music video. He did that for them in 1994. But again, you've got another person that's worked closely with Fincher on the game in 97, Fight Club in 99. Um, he did The Cell in 2000, and okay. then also Panic Room in 2002. So that's what Kevin was doing about that time period. The Cell is a film I wanted to like way more. It's interesting. It's not a great movie, but I think it's at least sticks with you. It scenes stick with you, but yes. as as provocative and interesting as it should have been as a horror film, it just I don't know, it, it bored me a little bit. It kind of meanders quite a bit. Yeah, quite a bit. The last person I want to talk about, which we have talked about ad nauseum before, specifically around the thing 1982, special makeup effects supervisor Rob Botine. And the other film that he worked on with David Fincher was Seven, which I didn't know that. I, I love talking about these films and then finding these little tidbits of information of going, you know, Rob Botine shows up in the credit sequence at the beginning of Fight Club and you're like, oh my gosh, yeah. I totally forgot about that. Yep. And then when you do a little bit of research and go, oh, he worked on Seven as well. Pretty cool. All right. Let's talk about the people in front of the camera. Uh, Ed Norton as the narrator. So he has a ton of aliases within the film because he's attending the support groups. Cornelius Rupert. Yeah. His his actual, I guess, character name of the film is just the narrator. The narrator. Yep. Yep. And we've talked, we talked about him. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. We talked about him for uh, uh, Death to Smoochie. Yes. 2002's Death to Smoochie. Now, we were talking about David Fincher's work around this time period. Just a reminder what Ed Norton was doing in the late 90s. You've got American History X in 1998, Rounders in 1998, Fight Club in 1999, then uh, does a little film with Ben Stiller, Keeping the Faith in 2000, then uh, hooks up with Marlon Brando in the score in 2001, and then Death to Smoochie in 2002. A little bit Those all over the films, place. Those three films, like American History X, Rounders, Fight Club, I thought Edward Norton was going to be my favorite actor of all time. Uh, I really like him. I mean, I know we talked I mean, about I, that. I, I like him now. I, I like him a lot. quite a bit, but I, there is, those are three very distinct performances that show <laughs> just how good he is. Well, it, it, look, we've talked about this before. I love the fact that Ed Norton will take chances. Uh, he didn't get pigeonholed in a certain part of dramatic filmmaking. You know, he stretched his, uh, acting credentials within comedy I mean, he's been in the Marvel Cinematic Universe as the Hulk. Uh, I've, I've always liked him. And, mm -hmm. you know, he's he's a producer, writer, director, actor. He tries to do everything. Uh, and I, I know he gets a reputation of being very hard to work with. But I still like his output. I always think he's really good. Have you seen any of his directorial stuff? Uh, I saw the, uh, what was Did the latest Motherless one? Brooklyn? Motherless Brooklyn. That was the one. Mm -hmm. And it was, yep. it was okay. It was good. Yep. It went too um, bad. And... Just to shout, shout it out there, I was on Watch Skip Plus a little while ago, and we did Glass Onion, and Ed Norton is obviously a huge part of that film, so check yes. that episode out. Oh, good plug, good plug. All right. Uh, we danced around this next name a little bit when we talked to True Romance in 1993, 
because he had a very small bit part in it. And Brad Pitt is who we're talking about is Tyler Durden. He wasn't the Brad Pitt we knew when we were talking about true romance. But let's again talk about what he was doing in the 90s and then going into 2000s. So True Romance was 1993. Gets a larger part with Interview with the Vampire in 94. Then Legends of the Fallen in 94. Works with Fincher. Is that his breakout? Was that Would you call that like his breakout where people were like, ooh, Legends of the Fall, Brad Pitt? I think they were talking about him, about that and Interview with the Vampire. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that, that one-two punch probably is correct. Yeah, Brad Pitt kind of really shows up on the scene with two quality films in 94. Uh, and everybody is kind of talking about him. Then you get Seven in 95, which talk about a water cooler movie, especially oh. that ending, right? Yes. Yeah, same year. I mean, 94 and 95, he's really on the scene because he also has that same year, 12 Monkeys which he's absolutely brilliant in that thing. One of my favorites. Yeah. Then he does Sleepers in 96, which is a great film. Mm-hmm. The Devil's Own in 97. It's a passable thriller. It's not bad. Yeah. Uh, same year he does Seven Years in Tibet. And so he's he's riding a coast, but he's starting to falter a little bit and then comes to Meet Joe Black in 1998, which was not the box office success. Which I think people then were like, ooh, that's a bad movie. Yeah, and and we may talk about that one because I, I actually think it's a pretty interesting film. So we, we we may tackle that one. And then coming off of Meet Joe Black, we get into Fight Club in 99, Snatch in 2000, which, Hell yeah. I mean, talk about a scene-stealing performance. The Mexican in 2001, Spy Game in 2001. He shows up on an episode of Friends, a TV series in 2001. And then he gets back into blockbuster territory, I think, with Ocean's Eleven. And starts doing that franchise. Yeah. Uh, what's your general opinion of Brad Pitt just overall? I, I mean, Bullet Train was one of his more recent outings. And uh, I I kind of thought it would do better than it did. It, it was a moderate success. Yeah. But I actually thought that would, would be the film that really brought him back. Uh, because I've always I've just always enjoyed him. He's, he's one of those that I think he is a movie star. But I think he's a movie star with talent. I don't know where you land. No, I think I agree. I think he's one of our last movie stars. He is. He's had quite a few misses when you go back and look at his filmography. Um, we talked like Meet Joe Black. Um, what was that other one? The Mexican mm-hmm. also like not well received. But I mean, he's hooked up with Tarantino recently. Um, Cliff is one of my favorite hangout guys. A guy you just want to hang out with. And that climax at the end of the film is spectacular. Brilliant. Brilliant. Um, I want like a seven hour cut of that film. where We're just (laughs) hanging out with those guys. Uh, But I love, I love Pitt. He's, uh, he's one of those guys. You look at him, you're like, this guy's way too hot to be like a good actor. And and he actually is really, really talented as an actor. Um, And he seems like, I don't know. I don't know. He seems like a good dude, but then you hear some stories about him and Angelina Jolie, which, you know, you don't know who to believe there. Right. Um, but I, I like him a lot. Um, he's one of those guys when he's in something, it gets my attention. Now I might not rush out and see it immediately, but I'm going to see it eventually. Yeah. I'm the same way. I, I will say he's uh, there's a film, probably my favorite that I love to revisit is California and with a K with a K. It's early on in his career, but if you if you've only seen Brad Pitt in movies like Ocean's Eleven, Spy Game, some of the 
big Hollywood blockbuster. Juliet Lewis is in that with him, co-star. Yeah, and our X-Files guy, right? David Duchovny? David Duchovny, yep. Yeah, California is the film that even before all of the interview with the vampire stuff like that, that is the movie that made me sort of recognize who is this guy? That's a Dominic Senna film, I believe. Yeah, it's fantastic. But I, I, I just, if you've never seen it, you have to go and search this thing out. It's a fantastic thriller. I think David Duchovny's great in it. Julia uh-huh. Lewis, but Brad Pitt just totally steals that film. You'll just you'll never look at him the same way once you watch that movie. All right, let's talk about um, Helena Bonham Carter as Marla Singer. Where, where do you where do you fall with her as an actress? I liked her up until she started getting involved with, I believe, her husband at the time. Um, Tim Burton and being in all of the Tim Burton films and just kind of being the same quirky character, quirky. Yeah. That quirky character. Um, you see her in this and she's brilliant. Um, and you want to see her stretch her wings a little bit more, um, than she does now. Um, though I think she was, wasn't she in the King speech? Yeah. She's actually yes. had two nominations. Uh, the Wings of the Dove from 97, which kind of landed her this role in Fight Club. She was nominated for Best Actress in a Leading Role. And the one that you just mentioned, 2010's The King's Speech, she was nominated for Best Supporting Actress. Mm-hmm. And I'm okay. with you 100%. When she's in stuff like that, I think she's amazing. She's always been good in Tim Burton films, but I've just never really enjoyed her when she takes on the Tim Burton-esque quirky <laughs> role. Yeah. It it. I, I think exhausting is the word I'm, I'm trying to like search for. She's okay, but there's a point where you're just like, okay, I'm done with it. Yep. Um, little trivia though, because we last week we were talking about Miami Vice and specifically the TV show. She did appear in two episodes of Miami Vice in 1987. Oh wow! Okay, yeah. I didn't know that. Early on in her career. Okay, this one I'm super excited about. Uh, Meatloaf as Robert Paulson or Bob. I think Bob had bitched it. Yes. Most people, when, when you think about meatloaf in his acting career, I think people don't realize how much he actually did, um, in terms of film and also TV films, uh, television shows, et cetera. You might see him, you know, build as meatloaf or meatloaf a day, a D a Y. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I mean, Rocky Horror picture show 1975 was one of his earliest ones. And I, I for me, as much as everybody talks about Tim Curry, the best, the best musical performance in the Rocky Horror Picture Show, in my opinion, because I'm a big Meatloaf fan, comes from him as Eddie. But the other film that I just kind of discovered here recently, and it's I think Kino Lorber um, put it out on Blu-ray, but it's this film from 1980 called Roadie. And it's supposed to be this uh, comedy which deals with this real-life roadie and uh, it's it's quirky. It's <laughs> it has more misses than hits. But I got to say, Meatloaf is fantastic in that. I can't say the movie is a great film. I have a lot of fun with it. Uh, I just watched it for the first time about a year ago, and uh, I I really enjoy it. Now this time around, Fight Club, he's doing stuff like I think 1998. He was in that Patrick Swayze action film, Black Dog. Black about the Dog, truckers. yeah, yeah. And he's doing lots of TV movies, but. Where, where do you land on Meatloaf, both as a uh, artist, um, but also a an actor? Um, I think he's kind of underrated as in both areas. If, if that's hard to believe, because I know musically people will say you know he was brilliant, but I think people 
just kind of boil it. At least my generation boils them down to, I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. Uh, video. And, yeah. And man, bad out of hell is one of the, I know, me, the best I know rock opera. Uh, Brett would support me on this. I, I, mean, I get it. I get it. Yeah. Um, he has one of my favorite, just random roles in any film in Wayne's world. He's the doorman yes. talking about the shitty Beatles. Yeah. Um, it is super funny. Um, I think that's the thing. Like he is a funny guy. Like the other, I even think in this film, he's pretty funny. So it's funny to, it's funny. It's amazing <laughs> to see him kind of stretch his wings and, uh, make that sort of rock opera stuff, but also be able to, talk about the shitty Beatles and how it's not just a creative name and all this stuff. So yeah, I like him. I, it's always a pleasant um, thing to see meatloaf in a film. Sadly, he's no longer with us, but he left behind quite a bit of um, films to review, to go back and, and watch and, you know, music to listen to not just bad out of hell. I mean, though, if you're going to listen to one bad out of hell's pretty fucking awesome. Yeah, that album uh, from, you know, the first song to the last song. I, I don't think there's a bad song on that album. I love it. I love all the Jim Sharman produced stuff. Um, but yeah, Meat, Meatloaf is one of my favorites. Now, another name that pops up, which is I always forget he's in this film, is Jared Leto as Angel Face. Mr. Morbius himself. Now, we, we talked about Jared when uh, we, we sat down with that Marvel. Uh, wasn't a hit. I don't know what you would call it. <laughs> Uh, misfire. Let's just call him. The misfire. movie's so nice. They released it twice. That's yes. right. So at this time period, you know, Jared Leto was not the Morbius that we know. He was working on stuff like urban legend in 98, the thin red line in 98, black and white, 1999 fight club girl interrupted, which I think was 1999 as well. And then American psycho in 2000. Yeah, so he had, a, he had lot a good of, run. Yeah, he did he had a great he had run. A lot of these bit parts that would show up before he started, you know, kind of just taking the main role. Um, a couple of other people I wanted to mention in terms of the cast, we've got Holt uh, McCallamy, uh, who plays the mechanic. We talked about him when we talked about Michael Mann's Black Hat in 2015. And I think most people now would know him from the limited series on Netflix, Mindhunter. Mindhunter, yep. Yep. And then Zach, uh, I think it's Janeer, plays the narrator's boss, Richard Chelsler. And now when I see his face, there's only two films that I, I remember him from. And it's Jean-Claude Van Damme's Maximum Risk in 96. I think he played like a Russian bad guy. Uh -huh. And then Samuel Jackson's uh, Shaft from 2000. But he's another yeah, one also, of those background characters. I actors. believe he was also on the, maybe the, he was one of the board members in Tommy Boy, I think. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think he's, uh, was he in the Do Ray Donovan te television show or something of that nature? He might've been yet. Yeah, I think he's in Twister as well. Yeah. I think he might he, be in Twister. That's yeah. right. He's just one of these background actors that. Yeah. You would recognize this, you know, cause he's, he's a bald guy. He looks kind of, you know, dopey in a way. Yeah, he looks like a corporate executive. Yeah, he does. He was fits one. <laughs> that role perfectly. Uh, okay. Let's talk about production development. Now, like I said, the DVD, the Blu-ray, you will get hours and hours of anything you want to know about Fight Club. And I got to tell you, there's books. There's tons of books out there written on Fight Club, the philosophy of Fight Club, you name it. Fight Club, over its 20-plus years, has really garnered a lot of attention and reevaluation. I wanted to kind of hit on a few things that I thought was kind of fascinating and, and chime in at any point, Brad. So um, Laura Ziskin, head of the division Fox 2000, purchased the rights to Fight Club um, from the author for $10,000. Okay, that's it. Not enough. Good uh, Lord. 
Yeah. So Polinic, there's a whole interesting story about um, how they even prepped it in order to get it in front of the studios. You can find it on Wikipedia out there in trivia, et cetera. It's pretty cool. So um, Laura Ziskin initially considered hiring Buck Henry to write the adaptation. That's the, the graduate guy, right? The graduate guy. Exactly. Okay. Um, so she found it very similar to the 1967 film, the graduate, which Buck Henry had adapted. And didn't Buck Henry work for SNL as well? Yes. Okay. Cause he did. Um, yes. I want to say what I, I just remember. I remember the graduate and SNL yes. were the kind of the two credits I associated with Buck Henry. So when a new screenwriter, um, Jim Ewells, lobbied for the job, the producers chose him over Henry. Producers contacted four directors to direct the film. <laughs> this is crazy. They considered Peter Jackson the best choice, but Peter Jackson was too busy filming the 1996 film, The Frighteners, in New Zealand. Brian Singer received the book but did not read it. Danny Boyle met with Brian Singer probably are doing something a lot. Uh, Okay. 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 (laughs) Uh, Let's not go down that rabbit hole. Um, Danny Boyle met with producers and read the book, but he pursued another film. David Fincher, who had read fight club and had tried to buy the rights himself, talked with Laura Ziskin about directing the film. He hesitated to accept the assignment with 20th century Fox at first because he had an unpleasant experience directing the 1992 film Alien 3 for the studio. Yeah, I'm so I'm thinking Danny Boyle was probably working on the beach at that time. That, that wasn't that 2000. Right. Yeah, that'd be right. Oh, yeah. bad choice, okay. Danny. Um, yeah. To repair his relationship with the studio, he met with Ziskin and studio head Bill Mechanic, and in August 1997, 20th Century Fox announced that Fincher would direct the film adaptation of Fight Club. Producer Ross Bell met with actor Russell Crowe to discuss his candidacy for the role of Tyler Durden, a Russell Crowe, Tyler Durden. Can you believe that? Mm, I kind of, in some other multiverse that exists, I want to see it. Producer Art Linson, who joined the project late, met with Pitt regarding the same role. Linson was the senior producer of the two, so the studio sought to cast Pitt instead of Crowe. Pitt was looking for a new film after the domestic failure Mm -hmm. of his 1998 film, Meet Joe Black, and the studio believed Fight Club would be more commercially successful with a major star. The studio signed Pitt for $17.5 million. That's a huge chunk of that budget, man. Uh, okay, here's some more crazy names. Uh, for the role of the unnamed narrator, the studio desired a sexier marquee name, such as Matt Damon, to increase the film's commercial prospects. I, You know what? That would be interesting to see again. Yes. Again. I want to see the, the Matt Damon, Russell Crowe starring Fight Club. Yeah. And here's another one. It also considered Sean Penn, which again is another interesting mm-hmm. name for that. Fincher instead considered Norton based on his performance in the 1996 film, The People versus Larry Flint. Other studios were approaching Norton for leading roles in developing films like The Talented Mr. Ripley and Man on the Moon. He was cast in Runaway Jury, but the film did not reach production. 20th Century Fox offered $2.5 million for Fight Club. He could not accept the offer immediately because he still owed Paramount Pictures a film. He had signed a contractual obligation with Paramount to appear in one of the studio's future films for a smaller salary. Norton later satisfied the obligation with his role in 2003's The Italian Job, which is a fun little film. Yeah, it's a fun film, yeah. Yep. 
Fincher's first choice for the role of Marla Singer was Janine Garofalo, Mystery Men's own Janine Garofalo. Oh, yes, that's right. Yeah. Bol- bowling, bo- bowling girl? Bowling? Bowling girl? Is that where we're going? Yeah. The bowler. The bowler. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> While Fincher initially stated that she turned it down because she objected to the film's sexual content, in an interview in 2020, Garofalo revealed she did accept the part, but was dropped because Norton believed she was poorly suited to the part. The I've, film, heard, I've, I've seen that yeah. interview where she was like, no, he got me fired. Yeah. Uh, the filmmakers considered Courtney Love and Winona Ryder as early candidates. The studio wanted to cast Reese Witherspoon, but Fincher felt she was too young. He chose to cast Carter based on her performance in the 1997 film, The Wings of the Dove. Oh, man. Winona Ryder, I think, could have done this role quite really well too i think so too Courtney love i could see because fincher really liked the people versus larry flint yeah um so there's that probably connection reese witherspoon odd choice really yeah this is this is so one i mean talk about a what if film that exists out there i mean I'm, i'm i'm thinking we got the best version with those the three that we got I do, but I, I'm I gotta be honest, I would have loved to have seen a Russell Crowe, Matt Damon, Janine Garofalo version of Fight Club. <laughs> yeah. That would have been so amazing. Directed by Peter Jackson. Directed by Peter Jackson, <laughs> yes. Um filming concluded in December nineteen ninety eight, and Fincher edited the footage early in ninety nine to prepare Fight Club for a screening with senior executives. They did not receive the film positively and were concerned that there would not be an audience for the film. Executive producer Art Linson, who supported the film, recalled the response, quote, so many incidences of Fight Club were alarming. No group of executives can narrow them down. Nevertheless, Fight Club was originally slated to be released in July of 99, but was later changed to August 6th of 99. The studio further delayed the film's release this time to autumn, citing a crowded summer schedule and a hurried post-production process. Outsiders attributed the delays to the Columbine High School massacre early in the year. Yeah. So historical context that that very um, sad tragedy did happen, and and it affected a lot of movies of that of that time period that dealt with violence, and this was mm-hmm. one of them, right? So this is where you were talking about the success of the DVD. So what's interesting is Fincher supervised the composition of the DVD packaging and was one of the first directors to participate in a film's transition to home media. The film was released on DVD on June 6, 2000, in a one-disc and two-disc edition. The movie disc included four commentary tracks, while the bonus disc contained behind-the-scenes clips, deleted scenes, trailers, theater safety PSAs, the promotional music video, This Is Your Life, internet spots, still galleries, cast biographies, storyboards, and publicity materials. It's one of the best DVDs of all time. And it was one of the first. Well, it's funny you should say that. So Fight Club won the 2000 Online Film Critics Society Awards for Best DVD, Best DVD Commentary, and Best DVD Special Features. Entertainment Weekly ranked the film's two-disc edition in first place on its 2001 list of the 50 essential DVDs, (laughs) giving top ratings to the DVD's content, and technical picture and audio quality. When the two-disc edition went out of print, the studio released it in 2004 because of the number of fan requests that they received. The film sold more than 6 million copies on DVD and video within the first 10 years, 
making it one of the largest selling home media items in the studio's history, in addition to grossing over $55 million in video and DVD rentals. With a weak it's $110 million for yeah. people who can't do math. Yeah. So with a weak box office performance in the United States and Canada, a better performance in other territories, and the highly successful DVD release, so this thing didn't make a profit till the DVDs, but Fight Club finally generated a profit of $10 million for the studio after the DVD release. One more piece of information, which I think is very funny. Um, an online release in China from Tencent censored the bomb blast at the end and replaced the ending with a message that Project Mayhem was thwarted with Tyler Durden being arrested by law enforcement and placed in an insane asylum until 2012, which was kind of adapting the original Fight Club novel, right? Yeah. Weeks later, Tencent released a version of the film restoring the 11 or 12 minutes that had previously been cut. So this is a great example. We've talked about this time and time again, anytime we talk about Chinese film or Chinese censorship, but they did not. I mean, in China, you cannot let the bad guys get away being unpunished, um, especially yeah. in a major release. So they dropped that last part, put a little, uh, you know, some title cards at the end and went, hey, everybody went to jail. I would love to see that just to see it. <laughs> I'm like, sure you can find it uh, on I'm YouTube sure you or can. something. Um, any other tidbits of information you want to talk about? Like I said, there's so much. I just wanted to get a couple of the highlights, especially like the the what if. No, I just think it's funny. You take this uh, film to a bunch of board members uh, to say, hey, what do you guys think of this? And it's like basically a middle finger to all of them. Like, hey, what do you guys think? Yeah. And, and to, I'd love to be there in that boardroom. Well, and to, and to do it in a, uh, I, I don't know, a time frame when the U.S. was still mourning from that violent shootout and to have uh, really a, a movie on its surface talking about anarchy, um, taking down the system, like you said, just a big middle finger to the board. Man, I would love to sit on that screening and just uh, see how many people got real uncomfortable or how many people left. I'm sure a lot Man. of people just walked out and were like, hey, you can't do anything with this thing, right? But alas, it got out there. Uh, and it and it finally made a profit with DVD, right? So I am so ready to dive into this thing with you. I, before we start, how many times do you think you've watched this film? Oh, 20 or 25. Okay. When I kicked on, when I kick it on and I hear that music at the very beginning, I hear that from like leaving the deep, you know, remember you used to like leave the DVD yeah. right in, into you and like hearing that music over and over and over. I just remember that. And I vividly remember getting a DVD player for Christmas and fight club was the first DVD that I bought. And it was like, no question. I'm buying that DVD with the orange, with the pink soap, with the, like the brown slip cover. Do you still have that DVD copy? Oh uh, yes. Okay. Yes. How many copies of fight club? Do you have the Blu-ray? Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay. Yep. This one is one of those I can't wait to get a 4K release of. Um, yeah, I, I, I hope they do will, some but, new stuff with it too. That would yeah. be awesome. Uh, maybe for like the 25 year, maybe next year. Yeah, yeah, that's right around the corner, isn't it? Uh -huh. Okay. Well, let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about this film. And uh, I have no doubt we're going to get into a very juicy discussion about some of the themes it tackles as well. So. Sit tight, we'll be back. Well, you see what I get from the refreshment counter. Oh boy, popcorn, and hot dogs, and ice cream, and oh boy, 
sparkling, ice cold Coca-Cola. Oh, boy, that tastes good. Have you been to the refreshment counter? Remember, your favorite snack will taste especially good with world-famous ice-cold Coca-Cola. Bruce Lee is gone, but his supreme style of fighting goes on and on in. Goodbye, Bruce Lee, his last game of death. Bruce Lee, he's more than a memory to his millions of brothers of all colors. And now, he's back. Hear Kareem Abdul-Jabbar talk about the mysterious death of his close friend and teacher, Bruce Lee. And see exciting footage of Jabbar and Lee in actual martial arts competition. Goodbye, Bruce Lee, his last game of death. Bruce Lee, the Muhammad Ali of martial arts, who fought his way from the ghettos of Hong Kong and San Francisco to become the most exciting fighting legend of our time. And now, he's back. Terry Levine presents an Aquarius Films release. Goodbye, Bruce Lee, his last game of death. Rated R, under 17, not admitted without parent. Okay, Brad, we're going to break the first rule of Fight Club. We're going to talk about Fight Club. Okay. Where do you want to start? I love this movie. Oh, okay. <laughs> there. We can start it. there? Uh, okay. I, and, and I will say, when I when I first saw this in 99, I was in high school. And so a lot of the, the themes and what it was going for really were over my head. And it wasn't until years later I started picking up on what the film was actually about. Um, which was funny because at the time I was boxing a lot in college and you, and you know this because you fought too. Mm -hmm. There is something about when you fight someone, there is this euphoric feeling and it makes you feel alive. There's yes, a very distinct feeling about fighting someone that makes you feel a certain way. And I get it now. I've never uh, been one of these. (laughs) I, I don't know how you feel. So I can remember the one match at uh, the River City Rumble, this kickboxing tournament. I think it was in Northern Kentucky, and uh, I, I had a bit of a reputation. And I go, and I couldn't get anybody to fight my weight class. So the only way I was going to get a fight is to fight outside my weight class. So and I went up. You always go up. Yes, you never yeah. go down. You always go up. And uh, I, I never went down. Um, at some point they called the fight, I don't know, third or fourth inning. Cause I got blood coming out of my nose or something. And, uh, but that night, the amount of pain felt like I was in a, a traffic accident, <laughs> but you're absolutely right. And, and this sounds so sadistic, masochistic. I, I don't know what you label it, but you, and it might be a guy thing. I'm sure it's a guy thing. It's probably toxin masculinity or whatever you want to well, label it. Well, I mean, guys are always more have been is are more susceptible to violence. As if it's kind of like that hunter gatherer, like that was our in 
you know, 10,000 years ago, we were the hunters and it's still in our DNA. Yeah. But I'm just, I remember being all iced up. Uh, I had broken, (laughs) it was my left pinky when they took the gloves off. I had blocked a kick so hard that um, the tape broke, my finger snapped. And so it was laying over my finger. So they, you know, they splintered it up, put it together. And uh, I felt so accomplished i was in so much pain but there was something about that feeling where you go i did feel alive and i felt like yeah. i just did something even though i lost and i got my butt handed to me um it, I, at that level this movie can really connect to you if you've yeah. been in that scenario i remember the first time i got knocked out and it was like a feeling i never have felt before yeah so we're saying you know, it, it just it, it there is a feeling about it and this film does capture that um, and I do remember people watching this and in and wanting to start fight clubs. And you're at that point in time, like, sure, sure, let's fight. And but you know, missing now you look at it, that's like missing the whole point. But um <laughs> the thing that stands out about this to me watching it now is just how kinetic it is. Like it just starts and it literally kicks your ass for the first like hour and 15 minutes. Like it is just going and going and going. And the music is up tempo and everything is up tempo and it just does not stop. And it's just bang, 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 bang. And it is a lot to take in very quickly. Um, but it is an enjoyable film and it's definitely something that I appreciate more about this art form than anything. It's like, on the surface level, this looks about looks. This looks like two guys who basically want to stick it to the American dream and cause chaos. Yeah. Underneath all that, there's so much more going on. Um, and one of the things that sticks out to me this time is like when he goes to the testicular cancer um, support group, and one of the guys is like, "Are we still men?" Is like is what defines us as being men is having testicles. Like, is that what we are? Is yeah. if we don't have as is, and that kind of those little moments where you're questioning your, like, is that what men are? Is that what we well, are? Is, are we just balls? <laughs> yeah. The, the, the one guy who shares a story about um, his, his ex wife is yeah. now having a kid and he's really happy for her, but he can't ever experience that. Yep. You can't ever yep. provide that in a relationship. It, it's such a, a sad moment. And from a guy's perspective, you're absolutely right. I mean, that just writing the beginning of the film, it's hitting you with a question that I don't think you're ready. Um, when, when you think about, you know, the advertising and everything of fight club. Yeah. And if you're paying attention to that scene, you're yeah. like, wow, what, what are they? Yeah. What am I in? Right. Yeah. But you know, questioning masculinity is in throughout this whole, whole thing. And then like, I, I, now as a 40 year old man, I find Tyler to be a bit much and a bit of one of those edge Lord sort of the guy who just always pontificates. Um, he's the guy that like would get really high and just tell you about how the corporations are all corporation. And yes, uh, the system is rigged and you're like, okay, guy, we, like, forget it. We, we know it. you're a good looking every, white guy. Everybody knows that guy too. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But you also look like Brad Pitt and you're you know, <laughs> zero body fat. Oh my God. It, is there a sexier man in any film that you've ever seen than Brad Pitt in this film? Uh, yeah. Which is weird because it, it it's grungy, sexy, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. There's a little little dirt to it, which I like. Um, but yeah, it's <laughs> it's peak like questioning your yep like heteroness because I'm like I think that 15 percent gayness in me is definitely uh, coming out because oh boy um, that scene where you know where he comes up from fighting that guy he's like the light shining down it's like you anyway Jose <laughs> I'm thinking about you <laughs> uh, anyway but. Uh, I just, I mean, the film looks unbelievable still to this day. Some of the CGI is a little wonky. Uh, when he goes to the apartment, um, the explosion looks a little weird, but all that to say, oh, the penguin. Yeah. Um, but all that to say, I think it strangely, this sort of takedown of the American dream and the anti-capitalism of the themes in this are kind of more appropriate now than they were in 99. 99 was, we were pretty good, right? We weren't like nine 11 hasn't happened yet. I think that's like the turning point for a lot of things in the 2008, 2007 or, you know, eight, nine years later. Well, how, so, but how much has actually changed from 99 to now? Uh, I mean, look like we still have, like there's still, I mean, not much, right? We, we just we have, still have school shootings. They they yeah, have them in ninety nine, yeah. right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, and we still have these corporations just keep getting bigger and buying up more corporations, and we still have that cycle of recession, growth, recession. Yeah. People lose their jobs or houses. Yeah, rich get rich, poor get poorer. I mean, yeah. what's really changed from ninety nine to now? Uh, just the names of the the companies involved, uh, and I only I only say that because I had that initial reaction when when you picked Fight Club, and I'm like, "Wow, my my goodness, it's going to have much more relevance in 2023." But if you actually think about the last couple of decades and when this film came out versus uh, today, I, I think the only difference is the the names have changed, but the perpetrators are the same. Mm-hmm. It's still the government, it's still the corporations. But what's interesting is there's no fight club today. There, there's no film. There's nothing tackling it. There's people on Instagram and TikTok and everybody else screaming about toxic max masculinity. Mm-hmm. There's also another group screaming about, well, we've lost what it is to be a man. Yeah. But maybe that's the. You ever notice the people always club? say that the people who say that like we're no longer men are like the least masculine people to say it like. When Ben Shapiro is telling you that, you know, we've lost our masculinity, you're like, dude, you're just mad because you can't ride a roller coaster. So shut up. Well, it's, Um, but it's weird to me. It's kind of like in my head. And I, you know, I would love a listener's um, input on this. It it feels like where Fight Club was presenting this uh, interesting dichotomy back in 99. We don't have that film version anymore, but it got replaced with people going on social media and spouting, you know, the same two different perspectives, but just not in an entertaining way. Yeah. Um, everyone in, in sort of their own way has become Tyler Durden. Oh God. One yeah. side or the other. Yeah. Yeah. And we don't Tyler Durden's not a hero. It depends. It depends. Okay. Yeah. But I look, I, I can watch this movie again tonight and enjoy every second of it. Um, I just love sort of the chaotic, violent, raw, um, just way this film is made and just how like Norton Pitt and all the other supporting characters are so good. Oh my God. They are so good. 
And for those who don't know, this has one of the best kind of twists um, in film history. And it's so obvious when you go back and watch it. It is so obvious. Oh, yeah. Can we can we talk about that? Like one of the yes. things I, I love about the screenplay is when you go back and rewatch it and all of a sudden the spots are right in front of you of where the filmmakers are trying to tell you that the narrator is untrustworthy and Tyler isn't real. I mean, right from the get-go, it's, I know this because Tyler knows this. Or he has lines like, Tyler's words are coming out of my mouth. Out of my mouth, yeah. Or he'll say something like, hey, for some reason, I, I thought of my first fight with Tyler. So sprinkled from the very start to the twist are all these hints that are a lot of fun to go back and pick up again, pick up again once once you know the twist of it. Well, my the thing I think is always the dead giveaway is just his relationship with Marla. Yeah. If you go back and look at it now, you're like, oh, it's so we like it's she so is so obvious. frustrated with him because yeah. you know he is such a on and off sort of guy. It's because he's not seeing himself with her. Um, and so when she comes back, he's like, what are you getting out of this? And she's like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, uh, so yeah, it's so obvious, but it, you know, the, the first time you see it, you're like, oh my God, that is crazy that this guy was never there. He was just a manifestation of what this other guy wanted to be. Uh, now I will say this, uh, Cameron, um, introduced his friend to this film a couple of months ago. And his friend had called out the twist at the beginning and, and said he'd never heard of it or seen it. I I would be curious if with all the movies that have taken place over the last 20 plus years, if now it's not a big twist to somebody coming into it because they've seen so many unreliable narrators or you know, Fight Club has maybe spawned off different things like this. Mm. But I would say even in today's standards, that twist if, if you go into this blind, not know anything about it, I think it's still a good twist and it will surprise the majority of the people. But even knowing the twist, it's so much fun to just. Yeah. Well, they're sitting in that hotel room and Tyler's in the chair and the narrator sitting there too. And he's like, think about it. And then all of a sudden it hits, hits him. And he's like, wait a minute. <laughs> oh yeah. I start to replay all these things. And it's like, it, 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 it just plays out so well. And it's so well done. Because that's the thing about a twist, right? You want yeah. to leave breadcrumbs. You want it to be obvious, but not too obvious, but not where it comes out of left field. But and even, so, even this, <laughs> after you know it happens, you go back and watch it again. You go, man, that was too obvious. But it was so obvious that it wasn't obvious, if that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's like sure. hi it's hiding in plain sight and you and you totally go over it. And I think that leads to maybe the next point is that the direction in cinematography I mean, if you think about it, the, this is a, um, it's a super dark film, but it's really funny. I mean, you, you've got this whole sequence where they're trying to, they're explaining like how hard it is to start a fight. Mm -hmm. That's one of the assignments. I, I think it's super funny, all that transpires. But the comedy mixed with this visceral imagery, it, it almost becomes transgressive cinema, especially the violence. Like oh, when, I think this is very transgressive. Yeah, when he's beating Angel's face or, or Bob's, body is you know laying in the kitchen and you see rob botine's effects but fincher is like and we've said this one of the greatest visual directors of our time no doubt but if you're that good you can put all those details about the screenplay and the twist and the foreshadowing right in the forefront because i think as a viewer you're caught up within the screenplay the cinematography and the direction and even the performances and it's easy to hide that 
Well, yeah, but there's so much going on on the outside too. Like yeah. if this was just a character study of the narrator, I think the twist is easy to pick up on, but there's so much kinetic energy in this film that it's just like, you're, you're never in one spot too long because you're, you're just moving and moving and moving. Um, and so that makes it a little bit more difficult to pick up because you're not lingering on stuff for very long. You're, you're going, um, yeah, the, the scene that kind of sticks out with me with like transgressive stuff is when the guy just beats the hell out of Tyler and he's like bleeding all over him. He's like, you don't know oh, where I've been Lou. And like, like blood owner. is getting, in, yeah. getting into his mouth and stuff. Yeah. Um, well, 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 what are your thoughts? Cause I'm curious. I, I, it, I, well, I, it, <laughs> so from a filmmaking perspective, 100%, I think fight club is one of the most important movies created in Hollywood in the modern age of filmmaking. What would uh, you consider modern age? Like anything after like the sixties, seventies, you including that? Yeah, I would say probably seventies on. Okay. I yep. mean, because everybody really champions a lot of the work, you know, the cinephiles and everything kind of talk about seventies being mm -hmm. the greatest decade of film. Right. So you get the blockbusters, but you also get uh, this um, this amazing piece of work and these amazing directors sort of breathing life into cinema and some just fantastic stories. Mm -hmm. and, and even things, um, you know, to, to have a call out to the Gentleman's Guide to, to Midnight Cinema, they'll talk about a film I never heard of uh, from the 70s, and then all of a sudden you go watch it, and it just leaves everything that's kind of made in today's age in the dust. And I'm, I'm amazed at how many little gems I just haven't seen. Right. Mm -hmm. But it's, this is one of those films that if I were to kind of take a, a, a look back in my lifetime, meaning if I'm born in the seventies and I look at all the movies that have been made from the seventies to now, I really think this is one of the greatest <laughs> movies ever made from a filmmaking perspective, but also from a, uh, we'll call it thematic perspective. Mm -hmm. So, however, I, I would also be the first to say, and, and we kind of talked about it in, in my kickboxing days or, or doing all the martial arts and stuff like that. I probably didn't understand this thing at all. And I was gravitating to aspects of the film and, and not really understanding it. Right. So, mm -hmm. Some of it was speaking to me, but n not the core stuff. So, I, I really didn't understand this film to about 10 or 15 years ago, to be quite honest. So the first time I saw this film, I was 27 years old. Um, and I loved it for its filmmaking. Some of the messaging was kind of scratching on my, on my brain and I could get some of the anti-capitalism and, and things like that, the, the surface level stuff. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's in your face. Yeah. But the, the thing that it was missing for, for me was the emotional content. So I, I can honestly say that it didn't have this emotional, thoughtful impact on it the way that it does for me now when I started revisiting this thing in my 30s. And, and I don't know if you were this way with it. So if I saw it in my late 20s, and it was you know probably in my mid-30s getting closer to 40s, definitely in my 40s, I've, I've watched, I can't even remember how many times I've watched Fight Club. I, I know it's, we're talking double digits. But every time I've watched it later in life, it just has more and more and more impact. Mm -hmm. And I feel the emotion in it now, more so than just the surface level messaging and even the dark comedy and everything. So it, it, it brings the question up, like, 
fight club, does it, does it even have an emotional impact until you're in your thirties or you've spent a little time in like what we would call the rat race of life? I think so. I think that's a very important piece to this film. I think life kind of has to beat you up a little bit for you to really understand this or maybe appreciate it at a, at a more than just a surface level. Um, yeah, that rat race really brings the fine detail out of fight club for sure. Yeah. So we, we can sit here and, and really dissect the filmmaking elements of it and talk about the direction, um, the cinematography, the screenplay, the performances. I don't, I don't really think there's a flat performance in this film. And if you take something like Ed Norton, I, I think him and Brad Pitt, since they're just about in every scene of this film, one of those two, right? Definitely Ed Norton. Yeah. I am amazed at how every time I watch this film, their performances feel fresh. I have probably seen this thing like 15 plus times. And in all of those viewings, every performance just feels like I've seen it for the first time. I may know mm-hmm. the plot. I know I know where this movie's going. I know the big twist. But every time I'm watching them, I feel like I'm watching them for the first time. I think they're that good. So as great as Fincher is in terms of the direction of cinematography, Ed Norton and Brad Pitt, I can't... <laughs> I'll, I'm trying to think of a film that is better that has Ed Norton or Brad Pitt. I think this is their best film they've ever done from a career perspective. I mean, what other yeah. Brad Pitt movie would you say is better than this or whatever Ed Norton film would you? I even, might say seven is better than this, but that's a stretch. I see. And I think, I think seven is an amazing film, but I, I think at some point this eclipses it just based on how much it has going for it inside of it as a film. Yeah. Yeah. No, there's definitely more more going on in Fight Club than there is going on in Seven. Seven is a a crime thriller. This is like a indictment on society as a whole, which needs like twenty five years to to kind of play out as well, right? Like it it need. I think this film needs society to s- basically stay the same. Yeah. And it's more poignant. Or, I mean, if Fight Club came out in the 70s, would it be poignant? Yeah. I mean, it could have come out in the 50s. Ooh, I don't know about the 50s. Well. I, I, feel, I feel like there had to be, like, media had to have matured to a certain point in order for Fight Club to have an impact. Yeah. I think. Or, or maybe it couldn't have had an impact until post-World War II. I don't know. There's probably yeah. some professor cinephile that can turn around and say fight club doesn't work as an early forties or thirties film, but it takes this time period and and this part in society as a whole in order for it to be effective. Yeah. I guess much smarter than us. Yeah. But I I do want to talk about, because I want to talk about the themes Okay. because as much as I, you could sit here and just give glowing reviews over every aspect of the film. I find that talking about the themes or interpretations, especially when you cross that 40 year old mark, 
it becomes way more of an interesting film to discuss. I don't know what you think. I definitely look at it much different than I did 20 years ago. Okay. 24 years ago. Yeah. So I think we should put a disclaimer here because you even said like Tyler Durden's not a hero. And I'm like, mm, we should debate that. Okay. Because I, I think there's an, I've, <laughs> I love these films because I'll spend a week just reading about them. Right. And uh, thesis interpretations, not just film reviews, but you can, you can find a lot of stuff about, uh-huh. you know, here's, here's what fight club is trying to say, but there's a disclaimer, right? So I think this movie can be, dangerous if it's not studied or talked about correctly. So you see some people and it may be us in our twenties, right? Mm-hmm. Attracted yeah. to the I, violence. I was definitely guilty of all this. Yeah. Attracted to the violence, the gross out aspects of the film. Um, we even talked about Brad Pitt's like 0% body fat. Uh, you also run across the film or people who think the film is about how men should be able to take out their aggression, however, and whenever they want. Um, they see it as a form of media propagating this theory that men are oppressed and can't be traditional men in society or, and I think you, you hit on this a little bit, the traditional man as defined by that hunter gatherer philosophy, right? Yep. Yep. Um, some people look at fight club as an anti-capitalist movie. Like it's just propagating anarchy. That's all it's about. Uh, and I think you can grab some of those messages out of the film, but if you did, in my opinion, it would be out of context and you wouldn't be looking at the film holistically. Mm-hmm. I, I think this movie asks a lot of questions, but it doesn't necessarily give a definitive answer to any of them. And I, I would I would say it, it, it's kind of interesting when we kind of joke about, well, the first rule of Fight Club is you don't talk about Fight Club, but that's the first rule that they break um, because they got to talk about it in order for Fight Club to grow. And I, I find that intrinsic or just a great example of what this movie is. Just when you think it answer or it asks a question and it's going to give you an answer, then a little bit later, it's going to destroy that answer and then ask a new question. Well, yeah, this film breaks off its own rules. Yes, absolutely. And then breaks all of the rules that it just broke. Yes. I, I mean, it's just constantly doing it. But you're not supposed to trust this film either. Like that's kind of what it's in a way you're not supposed to trust this film. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the themes that I, I, I thought this was kind of interesting um, because I would say later in life, every once in a while I have this thought, but have you ever just wanted to burn everything down and start over? Absolutely. Yeah. You never want it to happen. And, but I gotta, I gotta be honest. Some days when work gets the way that work does, or you've had enough of people you, you get to a point where you kind of want to like ex- exit society, get the camper, live in the woods, not pay any bills. And I think this happens to a lot of people who think they are promised one thing, but find out life has something totally different for them. And it's this existential dread of having everything you've been told to want, but still mm-hmm. feel empty. Yeah. And so this is where I come up with that comment that I'm sure somebody smarter than us would come back and say, fight club doesn't work until your nation gets to this maturity point or society gets this maturity point or even media gets to this point. Yeah. Um, so I, I think this is the line that Tyler Dern that kind of resonated with me this time where I'm like, Oh man, I've had those days. Advertising has us chasing cars and clothes, working jobs we hate so we can buy shit we don't need. We are the middle children of history raised by television to believe 
that someday we'll be millionaires and movie stars and rock stars, but we won't. Yeah. So do you think, do you think it still has relevance today? That, that type of theme? Yeah. I, and not, and I, I think I, cause I was thinking about this while watching this is we tell our kids that they can be anything that they want to be. Yeah. And they should be They're like, Oh, be whatever you want to be, be this, be that. But what I really should be telling them is stuff costs a lot of money. <laughs> there are and, limitations. <laughs> and um, to have a certain base level of life, one to which you are accustomed to, you might need to look at jobs that pay at least this because life is hard. And, um, and, and even then I'm like, that's gross and disgusting. Like I shouldn't be thinking about wanting my kids to make money because life isn't about money, but when it isn't, it is like life is way more difficult when you're poor. And, um, so just thinking about, I wouldn't say indoctrinating, but just being like, yeah, you could be whatever you want. And of course, you know, my kids are like, I want to be a doctor. I want to be an astronaut, all this stuff. And then one day they're like, I want to be a firefighter. And you're like, eh, let's maybe not be a firefighter. Let's go with the doctor. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I just like, well, we and, tell- and, and it's what it's, I, I just know this, like, heck, I wanted to be a ninja. Every, every time I saw a ninja film, I'm like, oh, I'm going to grow up to be a ninja. Right. Yeah. I wanted to be a ghostbuster. Yeah. And at some point you sort of lose that innocence and you lose that, um, vision and you start settling. Right. And, and mm-hmm. man, I'm, I'm seeing this as a parent sometimes too, as your kids get into the teenage years and they want to try out for this and all of a sudden they're not as good as what they thought they were, or even you thought they were and they have to settle. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and it's heartbreaking, but then you go, man, how many times did I have to settle in my life because of my limitations or the limitations of society? And I, I love what you're talking about with capital like, Hey, things cost money. But I love talking with people like, man, socialism, communism. It's like, I'm, I'm not going to say one's better than the other, but look, yes, capitalism does have some issues, but if you think you're going to be that poet who just writes every day under some communist rule, no, you're out in the fields picking potatoes for the state. <laughs> I mean, there's, yeah. there's a cost for everything. And, and it's crazy that, especially when you have kids, you have to start preparing them for that. Like you, you start saying you're, you can do whatever you want, but and and then you've got the the TV and movies telling them they can be the next superhero and everything. But at some point, that's just going to start getting taken away from them. And then you, man, it it's crazy to me how much we do get promised as a society, and then over and over again, how much we get crushed with that to the point that we get so frustrated and we go, we just want to get out of it and burn it all down. Yeah, yeah, you go from everything is all rainbows and stuff till I want to literally burn everything to the ground and then piss on his ashes. Yeah. And it, and it, and I'll tell you, it's even more heartbreaking when you see your kids experience that for the first time. Cause I've seen my kids now go through that and uh, you're like, Oh my God, to, to the point where, you know, you never, you never want your child to ever have a thought like, yeah, I'm just going to check out a life, but man, it, it's there and you got to watch I'm, for it. <laughs> I'm sure. So, I'm sure it's coming. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we have daughters and it's life is cruel to, to females, especially now with social media and all that stuff. But, oh God. Yeah. yeah. I, I specifically remember one day in the summer I was 
going to start my freshman year of, of college thinking about what I was going to major in. It's like, I want to major in art. I want to be an artist. I want to draw comics. I want to, you know, do all this stuff. And then just settling on going to business school. And it's like, why did I do that? Like, why, why did I do that? And it was like, my dad was a businessman. My brothers were business. You know, like it just felt right. And there are times where I think about what would be different, you know, if, if I would have done that, would I live where I am now and all this stuff? And I don't have any regrets, but you just think about those times where life was like, no, you got to go down this path and like artsy fartsy, this and that, like capitalism, bro, like go down that road. Um, <laughs> yeah. But it, it's crazy when you get to that level of frustration. And I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you're the same way as I am that I was lucky to have a mentor or some kind of lifeline mm-hmm. that at some point when I felt like I wanted to check out or burn it all down, somebody was like, no, 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 you got to find the balance, right? Just come back to this edge of it, see the light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, I, I, and you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I walked out of college with an English writing degree <laughs> and I am now working in uh, enterprise risk management and analytics. <laughs> <laughs> no, if you had told me, <laughs> Hey, yep. look, in, in 30 years, this is where you're going to be. I'd be like, ah, that, whatever. There's no way. Yep. Um, but yeah, you know, it's, it's crazy when you see a film like this. And again, thematically, you know, you, you have this character who doesn't know it, but he inadvertently burnt his old, his entire apartment to the ground and is now living out of this ramshackle house. And he, he imposed that on himself through, this imaginary Tyler person. Yeah. Yeah. But there are aspects of that that just sound so attractive some days. <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't want to pay taxes anymore, man. <laughs> I don't yeah. I don't want to deal with that. But that's a crazy theme. And I love how this film taps into it. And that's why I say like past 30 or 40, it resonates a little bit. But you know, late 20s Troy d- didn't pick that up <laughs> at all. Um the sequence. I, I'm curious what you think about this Raymond sequence. So there's a part uh, in the film where they go and they take a convenience store clerk out into the back alley, put a gun to his head, and they tell him they're going to kill him. Uh, but Tyler's like, what, what did you want to do? Like, wh- why are you working in conven- uh, this convenience store or whatnot? And he basically says, well, I, I couldn't hack it in, in you know veterinarian school. And Tyler basically says you have to go back and you have to fish finish vet school or I'm, I'm going to kill you. What did you think about that sequence? I, I, you know, I think we've all had motivators who motivate us in different ways. Um, and I don't know if that was Tyler's way of, of well, it was this guy's motivation to, Hey, you're, you're living your life, not the way that you want to, you're living it as a convenience store clerk. Is that what you, is that again, is that what you grew up saying you wanted to be? You wanted to be a convenience store clerk and uh, work the night shift. Um, is that what you told people in first grade when you got up in front of class and said, I'm going to be a convenience store clerk. No, you <laughs> said you wanted to be a vet. Yeah. You wanted to do animal stuff. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I, I think about that scene a lot because you see the point of it. Like you see him saying, Hey, that tomorrow uh, his breakfast is going to be the best he's ever had because, like, this is the first day of Raymond's new life, and him sort of feeling like he is this important character that he bestows a new life upon Raymond because he he kind of enlightened him to 
this dream of his that, hey, just because it's hard doesn't mean you can't do it. You need to to get back on that grind. Um, yeah, it's it's kind of a difficult scene to watch because like this guy is obviously paranoid and not paranoid, but just afraid. And but Raymond's life is probably better after that. Yeah, it's it's a crazy if he follows scene, through. Yeah. Assume, assuming, because you don't know, right? Yeah. And and then there's a there's a sequence in the back end of the film where you see all these drivers like so you know he's done this a bunch of times to different people, mm-hmm. and he's basically putting them in a position to say what is it that you dreamed of or what were you on track to do? If you don't go do that, I'm going to kill you more or less. Mm-hmm. It is a messed up scene, just totally messed up. But assuming that that person is now saving puppies and kittens. It it's again this weird piece of the film where you go the um how this all transpired super transgressive and and you can't sit there and go, wow, I totally agree with that. But at the end of the day, it does ask that question, is that was that is that a good does thing? It, does it get results? Yeah, does it get results? Like did was that a good thing? I mean, I think we've all had moments, right, where something has happened to us maybe not fully in our control and life made a change. And it was like, we had to, we got to this fork in the road, sort of like Raymond, his was forced, but now he has to make this change. Um, I think we've all had some sort of fork that we've had to take, whether we were in control of it or not. Sometimes it's like graduating from college, but like you, you get to this point and you, you have a choice and you have to make that choice. And, you know, Raymond's was, but that's the thing to me. It's like Raymond was never felt like he was in control of his choice is the only thing I I would say to you. It's like, well, he was forced into going back to veterinary school because it was either that or die. Um, It would have been, I think it might carry more weight if the threat wasn't, they, I, I don't know because then he wouldn't have gone. But you know what I'm saying? Like, have, have you ever met make... somebody that thought that way? That put those things, or I don't know, motivated themselves in that fashion? I mean, I I feel like I've I've met people who were way more motivated than me, but it was like a dangerous motivation where it was like, no, I've got to do this or I'm going to die. You know, like if I don't do this, why am I even going to live? Like that sort of deal. Um, very kind of bro mentality when it comes to like money and, and, and working and, and having like a very unhealthy relationship with say health and things like that. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I had met a guy and it was, I, I think it was after I'd finished uh Chen Kwan and I, I was told I had to go learn like either judo or um, I, I think I was trying to study like uh, Shito Ryu karate. And um, there, there was a guy I was training with, and he lived in Japan uh, for a little bit, studied with some important people at the time. And I was training with him and I, there was, I, I can't remember was there, there was some aspect of something I just couldn't get down. And he and I were talking and I'm like, how, how did you get this so quick? Or how did you, I can't remember us talking, but it, it had to do with this form, this kata, and I, I wasn't very good at it. And he was fantastic. And he was one of those guys that, I mean, you could hold something directly over his head and he could just kick it straight up. Not like, it, it was nuts, this guy's flexibility. And he he told me that um, from a practitioner, he, he said in his head, he just convinced himself 
he would rather die than not learn how to do this correctly. Like that's how he thought. Yeah. And and he had told me, he's like, you have to start thinking that way. <laughs> and so I, I tried it. Yeah. And, and I got to say, I, I do find myself thinking that way a lot um, in, in certain things to where I will tell myself from a, whatever the obstacle is or whatever I have to learn or something of that nature. Because as soon as he told me that, and I kind of got that, that mindset. Yeah. That, that actual kata, everything got easier because I committed myself to it. But in my head, I'm like, look, you'd rather die than like screw this up kind of thing. You have to nail it. You have to pass this. Right. I can't motivate myself like that. Yeah. It's weird. I mean, um, there, there are moments where I'm like, man, I've, I've got to pass this course or I got to get this done. And, and in the back of my head, I'm like, you've got to, you got to take on that mantra. Like you're going to do this or you're going to die. I, I, I will play tennis against my son and I will tell myself I am not losing to him. He's really good now. Um, and I'm like, there's going to be a day he's going to beat me, but I'm, I would rather die than have Cameron beat me at tennis. And I know that's going to kill me. But at the same time, I can also think about all of the successes I, I've had and go, I think I contribute some of my success to that mentality, which is so messed up, man. Yeah, that's messed up, messed up. But yeah, it's, um, again, it's this, what makes this movie so interesting is you get that sequence and thematically you look at it and go, it's it's just the wrong way to go about it from a societal standpoint, but yet the impact is good. Yeah, um, yeah. You, you had talked about the American dream so what is Fight Club saying about the American dream? Oh, boy. I I mean, I think obviously, well, not obviously, but to me, it's like the American dream is completely broken. Um, if you're not willing to work this cubicle nine to five, kiss up to your boss, travel, um, you know, always be working sort of deal, then the American dream isn't really real. And I think it's awfully funny too we see a lot of white people in this film in in a film that talks about the american dream it's always included with the white people yeah that's a not a whole lot of black people in this film and i think that's our purpose is because the american dream doesn't apply to them um they're they're not even like even thought about and i think that's a very interesting way to look at it but yeah i as much as I love our country, it is very difficult for me as a privileged white man to not feel like the American dream is not in my favor. Yeah. Like, there's, I would have to do a whole lot of stuff not to be able to get where I want to go in a way. Um, successful parents, successful siblings, you know, like college graduates, all this stuff. Like, it would take a lot for me not to be successful. Like not like a, I'm not saying like millionaires. I'm just saying like in the sense of being successful. Okay. Someone, not me, someone say, you know, not white and in male and all that stuff. Like it's much more difficult. And, um, it, I don't know what necessarily this, like, I know what it's, it's, it's trying to say about the American dream, but I think it makes you reflect on the American dream, like in your context um, and, and what's going on now. So is that a better theme really to, to not really make you think about what this is saying about the American dream, but like what is 
what is the American dream and how does it apply to you? It's kind of, it's a weird answer, right? But like it, the film asks questions. It doesn't give a whole lot of answers. So then you begin to start questioning yourself and the things around you because it, the, it, it kind of lays things out for you, but you know, they're going after these big corps. Starbucks is like a huge target of this film. It's because like, it's a huge, you know, yeah. it, it kind of like represents that sort of $5 coffee sort of mentality that we have still to this day. Now it's like $8 with inflation, but you know, like these people need to feel included in something because they don't feel like the American dream applies to them. And that's why they kind of come together in a group. It's like, we see a lot of these other people. It's like people who become tribal about their political parties and sports teams and all this stuff. Like you feel wanted and you feel needed. Um, And I think when, when people feel like the American dream has passed them by, they go to those groups, they go to, people who feel the same way. That's why conspiracy theories and things like that are like people who feel like they're way more important than they really are. Like, like these people are like, well, the government's watching us and like, are they watching you sit at home all day? Like doing nothing? Like you're thinking way too much about yourself, but um, yeah, that's a long winded answer to say like, it's it just like these people feel left out and that's kind of their, formation of feeling included in something. So you think, you think it's basically another like piece of art that's talking about the broken American dream. I do. Yes. Yeah. I think, I think now again, opinion, I think it's more extreme than that. I think a lot of movies will, or even books, et cetera, will, will tackle the, the American dream is broken Here's the results of the of that fractured dream. I think Fight Club is saying, look, the American dream is a lie in the first place. It's not broken. It's a flat out lie. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think it's interesting that you're absolutely right that this is a movie about a bunch of white guys who are frustrated. And in order to feel feel anything, they're like hitting each other or they're joining these groups to kind of feel something because in their head they're going well, the American dream's broken. Like I'm buying all of this stuff. It's not working. I still feel empty. I'm, I'm not feeling anything, but you know, people outside, um, people of color, everything else, maybe they have another layer of frustration, which is, look, it's not about, is the American dream broken? There is no American dream for them. Like yeah. it's a flat out lie. Like they recognize that. And I think fight club is, is kind of saying that to a certain degree, it's not about a broken or fractured American dream. It's like, dude, that thing is just a lie to begin with. Now, I don't know if I necessarily believe that. Like you said, it makes you think about it. But I like how this movie makes you think about that theory and saying, you chasing all of this stuff, um, that, that's total bogus. Like, you, you shouldn't be doing it to begin with. I, I think at the end of the day, the movie is trying to take these two concepts and, and merge them together. Um, the first concept is just fuck the rules. Like sometimes the dream is not worth the struggle, um, our freedom, our souls, or even any time we have left on this earth. And again, at 50, that really sounds enticing. And it's really trying to tell you, look, just be whoever you want to be, whoever you are. 
If it looks like traditional masculinity, fine. If it doesn't, fine. But stop chasing down the American dream. It's a lie. Fuck the rules, right? So that's that's the first one. But the second thing is you have to connect with people in order to survive the world. And that's the only real healthy way to feel anything is through connection. Mm-hmm. So you have this one theme or philosophy that is just anarchy. Don't even participate in the American dream because you're selling your soul for it and you don't have to, but you got this other thing where it's like, man, you got to participate in trying to get the American dream because that's where you're going to find your connection. Uh, and at the end of the day, I think it's, I think this film, the reason why it asks a question, tears it down, then tear down, tears down that answer and then creates another question. It, it's trying to find this perfect balance of being yourself, but also saying like, fuck you rules. <laughs> and, um, you know, sometimes you have to participate in the rat race to get that connection, but don't participate too hard because you're, you're going to lose all of these other things that make you, you. And that's, yeah. that's where I think the, um, the brilliance of fight club, like I, I would be very surprised if you could come down and say fight club definitively says this about this one theme. And I would say, yes, at that part of the movie, it is asking that question and it's putting that theme or topic out there. But if you wait a little bit longer, it's going to take that same question, that same topic, it's going to turn itself on the head. And the fact that you end the film with like basically the financial institutions being destroyed and all of this anarchy happening, but him finally making a connection with a person. Yeah. I don't think he's saying that he couldn't make that connection until he did all of this chaos or anarchy. I think they both coexist and you have to be comfortable with that chaos and our anarchy. Um, <laughs> but you need that connection to survive it to some degree. Well, yeah, like we, and that's like, kind like of that one day, of the things I was, I was, yeah, I was thinking like, it's just, I, I was going to say, and, oh. and uh, w- the only other thing is that it reminds me of that yin yang table that was at the beginning of the film. Yeah. Yeah. Shit. What? <laughs> I was going to say that <laughs> oh, sorry. about the yang table, about the living in chaos sort of yeah. deal. Um, yeah. It's very pronounced that he would kind of call that out. Cause there's like not that he's saying stuff with furniture, but then like when the, when it's on fire and it's exploded, you see the table again, yeah. um, living amongst the chaos and stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. We have to, you know, I wanted to bring up one thing before I, I, I left off is I also found this very interesting now, kind of as the trans uh, commentary that's in this with Bob. Oh yeah. Like Bob kind of being the trans character and like the narrator sort of building a relationship with this guy who was once like a bodybuilder and now has these breasts. And does that make him less of a woman or less of a man now and all this stuff and, and really showing that he cares for him. So you have these big masculine themes and like the guy that he cares about sort of the most throughout the whole film is Bob. Bob is like the most female, like of all of them because he has these breasts. Um, and I found that very interesting in 2023 that, you know, we're this panic about trans people and stuff like that. And, and here in 1999, we're saying this guy who literally is wants to be, you know, is forming these fight clubs to feel things has a relationship with this other man who can be so your trans character in this film. And I found that very 
I don't know. It was it was weird to see now because I didn't pick up on Bob's sort of alignment to the trans community until like the last few times I've seen it. Yeah, it, it, I I think that's why in in my head I'm like, okay, from 1999 to 2023, what's really changed? Nothing. That stuff was going on in 1999. It, it's going on today. Uh, it it might have been a different group. It might have been anything. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, again, it's all about that struggle, right? It is about the, okay, I'm chasing down the American dream, but look at what I'm losing and look at all the connections I'm losing and and look at all these rules I'm following, but then look at all the rules I'm breaking. I mean, it goes back and forth. And, I, and what I find uh, so just empowering about this film is it's one of those movies that it just speaks to you, but you have to have had, I think, the, the right life experiences to get the most out of it. Yeah. So yeah, you said that you didn't think like a theme stuck, stood like there was like it would say the same thing throughout the whole film, like it changes. I think it's saying that the struggle is real throughout the whole <laughs> that, film. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I, I if if there's one thing that it is probably trying to put in front of you from a, a theme perspective is probably that damn coffee table. I mean, it, it's <laughs> almost like a Buddhist philosophy that like you said, the struggle's real. It, it is always going to be the yin and yang. And at some point you have to find that way to break the cycle, but at the same time still find that connection with, you know, the person next to you. Mm-hmm. So it's, I, I love these kind of films that do everything on the surface in terms of visually stimulate you, um, you know, just challenge your senses challenge your sensibilities, but then also have all of these different layers that you could sit here and debate over and over again. Um, but again, I, I think what makes this film so good is also what makes this film so dangerous. Yeah. I was going to ask you, is this a dangerous film? I think it's a very dangerous film. Mm. Um, but I think it's, I think it's dangerous for two reasons. One, you can get the, the wrong person looking at this film and only taking one aspect of it and running with it. And um, kind of pointing to this film and saying, oh, this this I love this movie because it's saying this one thing and sort of missing the entire point of it. Right. Mm -hmm. But I also think it's a dangerous film for society because it is trying to kind of break down those rules in society and break down those conceptions and everything else. And and it's the type of film that we need more of, I think, Uh, not even today, like in any given year you need more films like this to kind of come out there and just really force you to think like debate. I don't, I don't know why people get so upset about talking about politics, religion, debate. I, I will talk about it all day long because at the end but, of the day, but, no, but you're a rational person, I know. right? There's, there's a difference between having a rational conversation and then someone who thinks that like people are, you know, reptilian people. Like you can't, you can't have a, rational conversation with I can totally people. have a rational conversation with somebody who thinks that all the people are reptilian in power. I can you have a, might think you can, but you're like, you're talking to, you might as well be talking to a wall, but I'm, I'm not going to talk to them for the, the problem is I would go into that conversation, not from the standpoint of, can I convince that person of my philosophies or my perception? I would go into that conversation to say, I would love for somebody to challenge my thoughts and views because if I can articulate it and it makes sense to me, and if I walk away from that conversation going, oh, here's a couple of new questions I need to ask myself in order to really make sure I believe what I believe, 
That's a great conversation. I love that. If yeah. I walk away from that conversation and go, well, I still, I still really feel good about what I believe in, what I'm praying to, everything else. I'd be like, cool. I, I can articulate it. I feel comfortable with it, but I don't, I never walk into that conversation thinking I'm going to change somebody's opinion. That conversation is always about me and, and okay. me pulling my, my own thoughts and feelings apart. But I think that's the problem. Like if people go into these conversations thinking they're going to convince the other person or go, Oh, I get you in an aha moment and point out how stupid you are. Well, yeah, that conversation's never going to end well. <laughs> but if you can go into that conversation and go, man, this is just about me learning if more people took that approach to it, it wouldn't, it wouldn't, people wouldn't be so nervous about talking about politics. Yeah. And again, you're, you're a rational person. Okay. <laughs> but were there, were there any, I mean, these were the themes that uh, there's like 50 or 60 of them. Well, yeah. Through. There's, there's a ton. These were um, the ones that stuck out to me more. So this viewing was, um, you know, again, what are we chasing? you know, from that advertising, are, are we really those kids that were promised X and we want to see it all burned down because we just, we just found out the American dreams a lie, right? Um, that whole Raymond sequence. Uh, yeah. It's, it's such a shocking way to motivate somebody, but is it effective? Uh, personally, I use it right in, in some circumstances. And then this whole thing about, yeah, the American dream is a lie. Well, to be clear, you, you don't hold a gun to people's heads. I don't Let's hold a gun. Just, to, no, I, yeah. inside, inside, I guess, my brain, I, I hold yeah. a gun to my own brain going, yeah. you got to do this or else, right? But were there any other themes that kind of spoke to you at this viewing um, that you that you walked away and just kind of going, oh, I, I got to think about this again because it really got me thinking philosophically? Um, Not really. I mean, the trans thing kind of stood out this time, um, but – not really. Like I think about this movie a lot. Like it, it's one of those, I'm always kind of thinking about it in a way. And that, I think that's why I watch it so many times. Cause it is a challenging film and I miss being challenged by films. Um, as much as I love whatever is the current, like big entertainment film, mm -hmm. a lot of times I'm not challenged. Right. And that's kind of why I like, um, say like, under the skins, not a great movie, but it's challenging. Um, this is like a challenging film. It makes you self-reflect. And, um, I got thought about myself a lot this week and that's not something that I'm comfortable doing. Um, but it really forces you to kind of look in and, 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 and challenge you. And I think that's the best part of, of, of fight club is, is kind of it pointing the mirror at you and saying, because we didn't give this guy a name, he could be you. You yeah. could be the narrator. And I think that's purposeful. No, absolutely. I mean, I I think I think it's an important film. Uh I think it's a grotesquely beautiful film. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> um yeah. but it is a car accident for sure. Like it it's yeah. a beautiful car accident. It's like a Lamborghini that has like been totally demolished. No, that's a good analogy. I like that. I, I like I like also the fact that I can I can walk in, watch this, and enjoy it at so many different levels, uh, but at the same time turn around and watch something like Ant Man, Quantumania, and go, okay, that was okay. I I didn't mind that. Had its ups and downs. I wasn't totally challenged, but I like the fact that this movie exists against those other films. It's yeah. just I I wish there were more of this and less of the Marvel or or some kind of balance going on. Uh, because I, I would say this in the film industry, there there is an inequity. There is an imbalance. Oh, yeah. 
Um, yeah, because usually, you know, those blockbusters used to fund all those smaller films, and now the- it's just funding the next blockbuster, right? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, because they cost $400 million. Oh, yeah, of course. Well, what else do you have about this one or any other notes? No, the music is really amazing. Oh, the music yeah, we should talk about like- I, I wish the Dust Brothers had, had done more um, compositions for other films and stuff. Like, give them, give them an action movie. I think they would do yeah. fantastic with it. But yep. uh, this thing slaps right from the get-go, man. That whole title sequence in the brain, I love it. I remember uh, buying the soundtrack to Fight Club and being super disappointed that the Pis- the Pixies' Where's My Mind wasn't on it. That's a big song, the- though. It's yeah, it's a huge song, but it wasn't on the soundtrack, and it, it was like, why? Why would they not include the best song? And so, well, <laughs> I was always disappointed. I what the the one of the other notes I had was I'm always impressed as many times as I've seen this, where you know you get the Dust Brothers in the beginning in that whole brain sequence, right? Mm-hmm. And then you do end with this chaos and destruction, them holding hands against it. With that pixie song, where's my? And mind? they go stop. Yeah, gosh dang! Talk about one of the the best. I don't know ways to start a film and end a film to where the start of the film and the end of the film are kind of talking to each other. Yeah, well, it it. I mean, that's what you get Fincher for, right? Fincher understands music because he was a music director, so he yes. knows how to incorporate that into his films, and all of his films have great intros. Uh, this one like you said, really feeds into like the last, the closing uh, song as well. So um, yeah, if you, you tell your brain, tell your brain to stop is like really difficult. Well, I mean, t- how many films have that kind of perfect bookend moment? It's, it's only a handful, a yeah. handful when you can walk back and just kind of go where this ends perfectly. Just, uh, I don't know, just fits perfectly with where this thing started. Like it's a perfect bookend to, to this really interesting story. Yeah. Uh, what else? Anything else? You ready? To, I mean, it's obvious. This is not a bomb, right? It's not a bomb. And I, I just think on the pantheon of films that we've done, is this the best? Uh, I don't, we'd have to go back. What are we at? 141 now? Something like that? Yes. Plus a couple of those. It, it's for me, it's definitely got to be in like the top five, top 10, something around there. I don't know if it's the best, but if, if you're talking about uh, films that both hit not just the filmmaking perspective uh, in, in the artistry, but also this emotional beat mm-hmm. and really making you think, it, it might be the best one out there. It, it's, it's the film I think about pretty much the most that we've done. Yeah, like I mean, it, it, Big Trouble in Little China is a different type of pantheon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, but if you're talking about a film that kind of fires on all cylinders – and just tackles its artistry with this kind of depth you, you, out of the 141 films we talked about. I can't think of one that comes right to mind that would, uh, um, even heaven's gate. I was so impressed with, but I don't know if it has yeah. what this has. I, you know, I just think there's a lot of media out there and I've been challenged through comic books and video games and stuff, but there's just something about being challenged with a film you sit with it for two hours and then it stays with you for days and days. There's just something about that. That is really powerful. Yeah. That I hope that we get more of. No, I agree hundred percent. We need way more of this stuff. Uh, okay. How about a little bit of listener feedback? 
Cool. Okay. We had Alex, our good friend Alex, uh, write in, and he actually wrote in two things on two different topics. Okay. So the oh, first okay. one, he says, hey, guys, I recently read that AMC was planning to test whether customers will pay more for seats with a better view or less for worse. It got me wondering, what is your go-to seat in a theater? Would you guys pay more to not have to sit in the front or back row? Looking forward to hearing your thoughts. Thanks. So you read this article, right? AMC's basically. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Where, where, where do you go to to sit? Oh, I'm like upper middle, like center. I I always want to be in the middle of the screen. So, but I don't want to be too close. So I'm, I'm probably like, if I could be like two thirds of the way up in middle, I'm good. Yeah. That's my go-to as well. I, and I, I would pay like at that point in time, like when I'm going to the theater, I know it's going to cost 50 to a hundred dollars. It just depends on if someone's with me or if my, both my kids are with me or if it's a family thing, a few extra dollars here and there at that point in time is pretty much immaterial. And I, and that's coming from a, from someone who, you know, I don't have to worry about that. I know there are people who do. And I think it's very, I, I, I don't know. Film is supposed to be a uniting medium and, and to all of a sudden have these haves and have nots kind of visually within the theater, knowing that you paid more for your seat than someone else did. It kind of hurts the viewing experience, I think, because it's like we're not all here equally. Yeah, I, there's something powerful about like all coming together. Like it's different. What, than what a about concert. concerts? Why is it different than concerts? I don't know. Maybe because of the whole history. I, yeah, that's a good question. It's just there's a historical factor to it. Um, yeah, it, it doesn't bother me at all. I mean, and I'll be honest, even uh, the theater that's closest to us, which is uh, just sort of an independent franchise, you have like three or four theaters, Horizon Cinemas. They have a cost difference between recliners and regular seats. Mm. So re recliners are usually reserved for the back part of the theater and the regular seats are in the front. And yeah. so if, if you want a cheaper seat, then you sit up in just the regular seats. If you pay more for the recliners, uh, it, it doesn't bother me because even living out in the Baltimore area, we have so many different viewing options between a traditional theater versus um, an XD theater versus an Atmos theater versus an IMAX, all these different formats, uh, formats, um, sound systems. Yeah. But you, you realize when you lived in Evansville and then when you lived in Southern Indiana, that that's not the norm. No, you had one choice and that was it. And yeah. you know, Showplace cinemas East started their dining theater and put Atmos in there. And then they had an IMAX, but they, they all had different price points, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I'm, I'm okay with it. I mean, the fact that they're going to say, well, you got the prime seat, which is the upper middle and you're going to pay that $2 extra. That's what happens when I go to a concert. Yeah. So you're right. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, <laughs> I wish more theaters would just pay attention to the projectors lumens and output because I know so this is the thing. When, we, when I used to work in the movie theater, you would run across these uh, managers or whatnot, thought they could save a little bit of money by dimming it down a little bit so the bulb would last oh, longer, right? Die, yep. those, yeah, those huge bulbs, right? When you do that, I think you're really cheapening the whole experience for everybody who goes there. And I'm telling you, it is night and day. If you go to a theater who actually has that projector rung in correctly um, with the, you know, the, cor the correct light output, it looks fantastic. 
especially with the sound system and everything else that's rocking. T- to me, I'm not so much worried about the where I'm sitting as do they got the brightness calibrated correctly on their projectors. That's what annoys <laughs> me more than anything today. Yeah. So I, I, we we did go to Horizon Cinema to see Ant Man, and I noticed that uh, the the projector was a little light. So I uh, I did a little bit of work, um, freelance work in between some jobs, and what I would do would go to the theater, mm-hmm. and you would uh, get there and you would do like a head count of people, and then you would do you would verify what uh, previews they played, and then like how good the quality of the projection and stuff was, and you would report it back to studios who pay for previews and all this stuff. And they would yeah. kind of help them project all this stuff. Um, so that's funny. You bring that up that you would always have to mention like, eh, the projection seemed a little bit off and it wasn't great. So maybe they're, you know, and so they could, you know, they could call a theater chain and be like, look, I think you guys are cheating us out of a preview or doing something. So it's kind of, funny. you can't do that now because they come on a hard drive and you just press play and, Uh, I I think you still need to go out in some of these theaters and tell them to turn up the brightness though. Oh yeah. We could still use, I'll I'll tell you the theater that pisses me off the most is Regal because the movie starts at nine 30 and even the movie 15. Yeah. It's like 10 15. Cause I got to watch 30 minutes of commercials, not even previews. It's terrible. Um, Alex also wrote in about Miami vice. He said, Hey, I watched Miami vice and noticed an artistic choice and wanted to get your opinion on it. There were countless times that somebody would be talking and their mouth wouldn't be in the shot. Like they would be framed, I think that's the term, in the bottom corner of the screen, and it only shows the top half of their head and the rest of the screen is just a wall or the background or the back of someone's head. Do you have an idea why the person who was talking would take up maybe 10% of the screen and it wouldn't even show their mouth? I wasn't sure if it was supposed to be like a third-party third party perspective and trying to subtly play up the paranoia or something else, so I thought I'd ask you. I really liked it though. I watched the theatrical version on HBO Max and still thought it looked great visually with their use of colors. <clears throat> That's a good so I I we had talked about it and I bought that Mill Creek um Oh the 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 two the do the two the two movies, the Kingdom yeah, and Kingdom yeah. of Miami Vice theatrical. So this gives me an excuse to go watch the theatrical because I don't remember that. Yeah. I do remember man focusing on a lot more reaction shots of people giving dialogue. And I don't know if that's what um, Alex is talking about, but uh, I, I didn't pick up on this. I didn't either. But I now feel, I need to go back and watch that. Yeah, I feel like we didn't do a, a good enough job. If, if if that's a huge thing in that movie, we just totally skipped over it. Yeah, I know. Uh, no, thanks, Alex. I, now you gave me a reason that I have to go back in the next week or two and watch the theatrical yeah. cut of Miami Vice because I'm going to pay attention to that. So that's on HBO Max? Yeah, he said he watched right. it and, and got the theatrical cut off that. Uh, Brad, yes, we sir. got one more movie in the bromance month. We really didn't talk about the bromance between uh, Ed Norton and Brad Pitt, but it's pretty strong there, right? Oh, it's a good, it's a 10 out of 10 on the bromance scale. I, I agree with you 100%. So we're going to close bromance month out with, oh. I, Another I, 10 out of 10 on the bromance meter. Yes, a, a pretty fun film. It was my pick. It was something that um, Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema has talked about it before. I think a lot of podcasts that uh, have just, you know, their feet firmly planted in fun action movies. I think everybody's discussed this. So I don't know what we're going to bring to the table that's new outside of talking about how much we love this bromance. But what is next week's? It is 1991's American buddy cop action film 
It's a Mark Lester film. Mm-hmm. It is Showdown in Little Tokyo, starring Brandon Lee and Dolph Lundgren. Yeah, another Dolph Lundgren film. I'm excited about this one. This is going to be a blast. We might, we might <laughs> actually, we've been trying to keep it just you and I this month. We may break that rule next week. We'll see. There might be a surprise. Yeah, we finally get to talk about Brandon Lee, which is great. Yeah, uh, we'll spend a lot of time talking about Brandon Lee. That was, uh, I don't know if we're going to talk about his accident so much as just how much we really loved his limited output he had. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think this gives me a chance to also try and squeeze in stuff like Legacy of Rage or Rapid Fire and some of his other films. I'm definitely watching Rapid Fire. Yeah, and yeah, I got to be a good parent and show my son The Crow because he hasn't seen it yet. Yeah, Ooh. I know, I know. So I'll correct that one. Um, you got to do a little guest spot this week, didn't you? I did. I don't know when it's coming out. I think it's relatively soon. I was on the VHS files. We were talking about our top four uh, opening sequences and films, and we had a great discussion. It was a lot of fun. It was me, Josh, and Eric from the VHS files. Sweet. I can't wait to hear that one. Uh, who else should they be listening to of our podcast friends? Yeah, so that's uh, Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, Watch Skip Plus, The VHS Files, Night of the Living Podcast, The Backlook Cinema Podcast, and The Mixtape Podcast. So go check all those people out. Yes. Troy. Yes. Also coming up soon. Mm-hmm. What are we doing? Well, you trying to break me. Yeah. Uh, this week, I believe we're actually going to record our second experiment we force you to watch a musical, which is a genre that you absolutely hate. And uh, it's a it's a musical that has an, I don't know, a pretty interesting background. Mm-hmm. So we won't give too much away, but we're going to talk about uh, the Apple and try and see if this is the film that uh, breaks Brad. So Ginger Dead Man didn't do it, but this will be a fun little discussion. So we're going to record that this week. And yeah. So people will get that. Before so the end by the time the you hear this, it should be out in the next few days after you hear this. So look out for that. Exactly. Uh, if somebody, I've wants, seen it. I've seen it. Yeah. Hey, you're still talking to me, so mm-hmm. that's a good sign. I got. I gotta. I gotta do some updates. There's an obligation to, to do this podcast, Troy. I know. I know. We have listeners. <laughs> well, if, if those listeners want to write in and give us some more suggestions, or even tell us their thoughts on the movie we talked about this week, Fight Club, how do they get a hold of us? Yeah, that's not about pod at gmail.com. You can hit us up on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or you can go to notabombpodcast.com and hit the contact us button up at the top and leave us a comment there. Awesome. Okay. Should we do the uh, exit for real this time? Yes. 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 Okay. Well, we I, talked about Fight Club. We did talk we, about Fight Club. We, we, we broke the rules. About, yes. We broke rule number one and two. I don't know if you're listening in the morning, the afternoon, or evening. Thank you for stopping by, hearing our thoughts on Fight Club. Hope we didn't get too deep for you. Um, you know, hey, we love this film. If you haven't seen it, go out and watch it. We think you'll like it. Uh, get back with us and tell us what your thoughts were. And then definitely come back next week. We're going to close out Bromance Month with just a, a super fun film and talk about Dolph Lundgren and Brandon Lee. So we'll see you then. Don't lose your head. <laughs>